Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This was a passion project, but I ended up staying and manning the kitchen with zero restaurant experience and zero kitchen experience. Waking up early, working in a 120 degree environment, a kitchen, cooking with walks. So just radiation in your face and your body. And I loved it. It was amazing. But it was enough at some point. That's the interesting thing. There's a point where the urge is scratched and then you go back to something that provides more stability. And that has been my life. I'm Andres Barragan and I'm a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're talking to Andreas Barragan, a longtime friend who happens to be an industry pro, secret ninja, secret agent, and also advisor of Bullish Inc. Sharon, what do you think about Andreas? He's a man who wears many, many hats. I mean, he is, he was incredible. And I've made a promise to not be one of those podcasters that like spoil the show by telling you what he's about to say, but there were a number of things that he had touched on about his life and decisions that he's made that I found to be really surprising, but also really inspiring. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I don't want to say he's the most interesting man in the world, but he is a very interesting man in this world. And yeah. we met through work years ago. And I think we hit it off because we saw the personality that both of us brought from beyond work to work. And we just checked in every couple of years and he reached out after seeing all the posts about the podcast and what's supposed to be a 15 minute coffee turned into an hour and a half zoom chat, which led to ultimately saying, Hey, you just need to come on the podcast. And <laughs> the things he's done, the things he's seen, it's look, he is Colombian. He was born in another country. He lives in America, but his minority point of view has everything to do with his approach to life versus yeah. the way he was raised. Yeah. And I think that he embodies so much of what we try to create here together on this show because his life has been so rich due to the fact that he's lived in multiple places. He has really tried to get to know folks from all different backgrounds and tried to connect with them on a deeper level. And a lot of that shines through in the experiences that he had shared with us. Yeah. So, so we should just shut up and let you meet our friend Andreas. Andreas, welcome to the pod. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Raman. Thank you, Sharon, for having me here. I'm delighted. So I've got to ask a question. Some people know who you are. I think both of us have been around the industry. But before we get into who you are today, who were you before all of that began? Can you, can you tell us a story from your childhood? 
Wow. <laughs> We're prepared for that one. We go yes. deep really <laughs> fast. <laughs> well, I have to caveat my answer with, I have a terrible memory. <laughs> Seriously, it is a deep flaw of my brain, I think. It's getting worse with age. So I'm going to try to recall what I think were formative sort of things. It's likely not going to be chronological. I'm going to start chronological because I'm that kind of analytical guy, but then I'm going to go on tangents. And probably those tangents are meaningful because those are the tangents ones. Tangents are the best. Tangents yeah. are the best. Yeah. So I was born in Bogota, Colombia. I grew up there and I grew up with a bunch of seemingly middle-class kind of boring environment markers. But at the same time, a lot was happening in the country. And out of that boredom, that was in part because I was an only child and an introvert, I think I developed my personality. I developed who I am, not with really strong events or, or, or things happening to me personally, but the environment was pretty volatile and violent and stressful, quite frankly. What were some of those, as an American who grew up in Alabama, I recall what I saw in the news from the 70s and 80s in Colombia, but what were some of those violent things that you saw as a kid or you that were surrounding you? Well, you're, you're probably a fan of narcos, <laughs> 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 which is a point of contention in any conversation I have with folks that ask me where I'm from. Yeah. No one should be a fan of narcos, by the way. Okay. I'm not. <laughs> just want to get that out of the it's, way. It's glorifying violence. It's glorifying the life of, of someone that pretty much single-handedly almost destroyed the country, even though... Hey, we've got one of those. We've got one of those. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So interesting. Let's park that one for, for a later debate <laughs> on, on causality and if folks like that are symptoms or are right, real right. drivers of what's happening in society. But anyway, so Pablo Escobar was at its height, committing acts of violence, bombing malls, bombing airplanes, etc. So so I grew up in a very sheltered environment. Plus my my family was middle class Catholic. So a little bit of a sheltered environment plus you didn't want to go out cuz you could be killed by a bomb or later you could be killed by sort of ex narco paramilitary people that were out of a job once Pablo Escobar was killed and they were basically running amok in kidnapping, stealing cars and they wouldn't just take your car, they would kill you. And take your car. So it was pretty violent. I remember seeing, I mean, corpses as a child. I remember one time we were in the school bus getting to school. It was in the outskirts of Bogota. By the way, Bogota is very cold. Unlike most people thoughts, it's, it's, yes, it's in the tropics, but it's up high in the mountains. So almost 10,000 feet above sea level. So these mornings were very cold and there was mist and, and fog. And we were driving in our school bus. We were getting to school and there was a person lying on the side of the road. And I remember being on the side, on that side of the bus. So I remember seeing a person that clearly was dead not because of blood, but because of how the body was sort of lying without any life and kind of in a very awkward position, almost like a fake body. It turns out it was a very important person, the mother of a political family. She was the mother of an ex-president. She had been kidnapped and killed. 
And these were everyday occurrences. How old were you roughly when you saw this? I would say I was probably 11. Jeez. Wow. Then later, the news, later in my life, the newscast was always about killings and bombings. And then that became routine. I mean, once something outrageous becomes familiar, it ceases to be outrageous. It's just part of your life. It's normalized. It's normalized. Well, it's the only way the brain can kind of cope with it. Just to fast forward a little bit, at what point did you and your family, if at all, when did you guys leave Bogota or Colombia in general? Yeah, well, I left. My family's still there. My parents are there. My extended family has sort of this been different sort of waves of migration within my extended family. I come from a big family on on my mother's side. There's eight brothers and sisters, actually seven sisters, one brother. So there's been waves of migration. I came to the US in in 2000. So sort of back up there really quick. I heard that you were schooled by South Dakotan monks. So did that happen in Colombia, not in South Dakota? Yeah. Yeah, no, that was in Colombia. That was the school bus I was I was riding that day to school. It was to attend my schooling at the school run by Benedictine monks and sisters from South Dakota and Minnesota, which is pretty weird. I mean, weird period, but yeah. even weirder <laughs> in Bogota. <laughs> right. Yeah, so listen, it was actually, I mean, kind of thinking about my background based on prepping for this conversation, I've always thought I had the most boring upbringing. And thinking about all these things, I'm kind of, wow, well, it's not, it's actually kind of a weird upbringing. It's kind of not a typical upbringing. And I think this happens to a lot of people. I think you look back, you think the way you grew up, the place you grew up was pretty uneventful or whatever. And then you realize that, no, it was eventful. There were a lot of different things and we are all individuals precisely because of that. Well, I think it's also, again, be it through traumatic moments or mundane moments, we all want to normalize our experience. We all want to think we're not just like everyone else. Like I think all of us know when we we fit in or don't, but it's you want a semblance of normalcy, no matter how abnormal, strange our surroundings might be. How are you the same? How are you different from from that little boy? I think I am the same sort of little boy, a bit obnoxious at times because of my honesty and and strong feelings about things and strong individuality. But I think I've taken a lot of the learnings and influences throughout my life by living in different continents, different countries, interacting with all sorts of different people, professionally, personally, and, and taken stock of that and tamed my worst impulses. So I like to think that I'm a better person now <laughs> than when I was a little <laughs> single only child, probably with too much attention from my parents and obnoxious little good student that always needed to be right about things. And I don't remember that at all about our friendship. <laughs> See, because you... <laughs> I don't, know if you're... you, I don't you actually know. I mean, <laughs> adult years, didn't you? <laughs> I'm actually thinking about that. You're more subtle in your rightness, I think, these days, Andreas. Well, thank you, Ramen. It's, it's I, an I, art I, form. I, it's an art form, Andreas. <laughs> it is. It is. And some days I'm better than others. Right now I'm being extremely pleasant. <laughs> that's because we're so charming and disarming. We, yeah, we appreciate that's, that. That's exactly it. <laughs> and so what inspired you to travel and to leave? You've had all of these experiences outside of Colombia. What was that first moment? 
I think I was fundamentally unhappy with my surroundings and sort of my lifestyle and the values surrounding me. I think having grown up in a in a violent time in a quasi failed nation state at the time makes you want to look for something better, something different. I felt boxed in the way I was supposed to live my life. My parents were supportive, but still my dad wanted me to be an engineer or a doctor or a lawyer. Sure. We know that well. <laughs> You're practically Asian, dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I am actually. My 23andMe says that I have some some Asian in me. That's probably why I... It's the doctor part. It's the doctor Yeah, part. exactly. It's the engineer <laughs> and the doctor part. <laughs> yeah. Then I think, on the other hand, I think I've always been sort of curious. And I feel inspired when I change my surroundings. So I think it was part dissatisfaction, part looking for exciting things to happen in my life. And I think that that prompted me to leave. Yeah. And tell us a little bit more about these exciting things, because as I was reading through your bio, there were many colors that I had never seen before in other people's bios, just really interesting stints all around the world. What are some of the top ones? Yeah, well, thank you. That's a very positive way of, of putting it. <laughs> I think my first, when I left Colombia, I went to Paris. Why Paris? Because I think I was super into French New Wave cinema. Mm. And it's so romantic. I really love that. I think so. I think so. And I went there looking for love, actually, that I had not found. I didn't go there <laughs> with As the song in mind. goes, you were looking for love in all the wrong places. All I wrong was places. looking for love in Paris. <laughs> That's a new podcast, quite frankly, guys. An idea I'm just throwing out there. I also was supposed to travel throughout Europe. The typical sort of, not backpacking, I had worked a couple of years. I still live with my parents because that's what you do before you get married down in Colombia. So I had some money in my account. So I didn't backpack. I actually lived quite unfrugally, spent all my money that was supposed to be saved for grad school. Those are the kind of financial decisions I've made throughout my entire life, by the way. Well, the time that stressed your parents out. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I went there supposedly thinking of traveling throughout Europe, but I got to Paris and it just felt like a great place to stay. I started meeting people. And one thing that struck me and probably the reason why I, I love the place so much was that all professions were worthy. I encountered a true middle class where you could be a butcher, you could be a call center rep, you could be a doctor, and you could have intelligent, interesting conversations with everyone. And no one was doing it for the money. Everyone was doing it because either they loved it or they kind of fell into it. Of course, I'm idealizing this. Of course, there were unhappy people that had two PhDs and were driving a cab and in back then and even more so now in France and Europe. But it was a more egalitarian. The pressure to succeed and make money was not there. And you could find interesting people across all professions and all walks of life. And I felt that that was great. That was the opposite of what I left back in Colombia, the opposite of my impression of America. And for a while, I thought of staying there. But I had grad school to attend to. And after a heated conversation with my parents, actually, who visited me for New Year's, 
the Y2K moment, change of millennia there, it was sort of decided as a family that I, I should continue to pursue my grad school studies goal and go to America. And that's where my Parisian adventure stopped. And I'm glad it did, quite frankly. I think that it's easy to fall on romantic pursuits. And I, Sharon, I loved how you put it. How romantic? Yes. But romanticism ends always. You want to leave the party when people wish you stayed. You don't want to still be there when everyone wishes you already left. Absolutely. Absolutely. Listen, I also, many years fast forward, I decided I was tired with my job. I needed a breather. So this is another story to your question, original questions, Sharon. And I decided I wanted to open a restaurant. Hang on. After years of success in the marketing <laughs> and advertising industry, right? Yes. It comes yes, in because- waves. It sounds like it comes in waves. You have a very vanilla, middle of the road experience. You go off and do some crazy wild things, you go back to the nine to five, and then you branch off again. That's exactly right. Well, that's, and that's what led to this conversation. And I want to hear about this more because I met you in the middle of one of those nine to five vanilla, moments. Vanilla yeah, we, were, we were in a nine to five <laughs> moment. And I think we could tell there was something more under the surface. So we stayed in touch. And we both did a bunch of nine to five as we stayed in touch. And then somewhere in this year, we both reached out. And I was like, you did what? <laughs> Can you please fill in the blank on the what you did? Yeah. Tell everybody, Andreas, what you were doing. <laughs> yeah. Well, first of all, clarification. It wasn't a nine to five. It was more an eight to midnight, 1 a.m. And that takes a toll. After years and years, Absolutely. Absolutely. that takes a toll. And I think that was part of my dissatisfaction with my lifestyle. At the time, I decided to quit a very comfortable and good job to go and open up a restaurant. It was this sort of urge to just stop doing what out of habit became sort of my life and it wasn't fulfilling me. I thought that I could take a break and come back and everything's going to be the same and everyone's going to be there and welcoming back. Oh, I'm, I'm glad you fulfilled your little pet project there. Come back, son. Here's your office. Exactly how you left it. And it, it didn't work out that way. It never <laughs> works out that way. But I think you tell yourself those kind of stories so that you can make those big leaps. So a nine to midnight or eight to midnight job for many years takes a toll. At that point, we as a family were living in Rhode Island, which is a beautiful place, but there was not a lot of social activity. I think people in New England have very sort of calm lives as opposed to New York City. Yeah. And and I think that also weighed in on me and I wanted a radical change. I've always loved food. Since my time in Paris, I started to love not only to eat, but to make good food. And throughout a lot of friendships that I cultivated, actually my first year in Michigan, which is where I went to grad school, I've been sort of cooking and getting better at it and enjoying not only the outcome, but the process, which is a rarity for me. I've been quite outcome focused and cooking was something where I was happy doing it. And the outcome obviously followed, but the process was beautiful. And then entertaining and creating this atmosphere where people have a great time. That's addictive for me. And a restaurant seemed like a natural thing to do. So Obviously, I went to Mexico and- As one up, does. Uh, yeah, as obviously. one does when one has with, these with urges. Zero, with zero restaurant 
experience, I'm assuming. <laughs> Zero restaurant experience. <laughs> and with the great idea to open up these beach restaurants in shipping containers. Oh, that's so cool. That you could take from beach to beach. <laughs> Which is not doable, by the way. Once you set up a, a, a container, you got to leave it there. Especially if you're dealing with Mexico. Things don't work in Mexico or in Colombia or in other countries as seamlessly as, as they work here. One would imagine that you hire a crane, you hire a semi, you put the thing on, on top and you travel and you go to another place. It's not as easy as that. But anyway, this was a pretty awesome experience for me because, again, it allowed me to do something that I loved to do with absolutely no concerns about financial success. This was a passion project. I designed the restaurant, the menu. I was supposed to stay there for a while to train the cooks on the menu, but I ended up staying and manning the kitchen with zero restaurant experience and zero kitchen experience. And it ended up for me being a four-month thing, like waking up early, working in a 120-degree environment. The menu is kind of a fusion Mexican, Chinese, Thai. So this was a 120-degree kitchen with cooking with woks. A lot of a lot of the food is woks. So 140, just radiation in your in your face and your body. And I loved it. It was amazing. But it was enough at some point. That's the interesting thing. As you said, Sharon, there's a point where the urge is scratched and then you go back to something that provides more stability. And that has been my life. And it's been full of adventure because of it. Yes. And full of decisions that seem a little stupid at the same time, <laughs> in hindsight. <laughs> stupid adventures and great adventures too. Yeah. At some point, do you think more are coming? Oh, I mean, we're not getting any younger, Andreas. You've got a little bit of hindsight as 2020. Man, why did I do that? It was a great adventure, but why did I do that? And then does the vanilla nature of life just kind of build up before the next one has to happen? I think there's that. I think that's intrinsic in my personality. So yes, there might be more acts to come. And in hindsight, they're going to feel some of them stupid and some of them great. But I also think that with age, this aura of personal invincibility takes Mine is a shattered, by the way, <laughs> right now. Mine too. And I, I think, I mean, I think the pandemic, I mean, 2020 was terrible in so many respects. And it shatters your little bit, your sense of optimism and hope and invincibility. And I am thinking and 2020 had a lot to do with it, that I want stability. I want less adventure in my life. And it feels sad. It feels like I'm, oh, I finally got old. I finally grew up. Maybe a little bit of a positive spin there. But at the same time, it feels comforting. It always seems to me, in hindsight again, that I went out to seek adventure, but I was really looking forward to returning home and feeling cozy and safe. That's interesting. The way that you put it, it makes me wonder if in your younger years, you created an experience where you were seeking out adventure for the difference of the vanilla. And now, I mean, as you go forward, it's almost as if you're approaching the adventure as a reason to then return back. 
too. Spoken like a true psychotherapist. Yeah. <laughs> then yeah. we'll send you the bill later on. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Just a by the hour. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're right, I, Sharon. I think I haven't thought about it in those terms, but yeah, I think you're onto something. Yeah. I mean, even when I think about myself and Raman too, as we get older, I feel as if venturing off the beaten path has become less scary, right? Like when you're 21, it seems so frightening to think that you're not going to be a doctor or you're not going to be the engineer that your parents wanted you to be, or you might not go to grad school. That seems like a big risk. And when you're in your forties or your fifties, that just seems like whatever. I mean, that's a decision. Well, you kind of made your peace with your decisions. Sorry, I can't go to med school now. So I better make it with whatever I've got. Or even just, hey, this job sucks or it's not right for me. So I'm leaving. Whereas I think in when you're earlier in your career, that that seems like a really bold move. And it's just listening to you talk and almost, it is this interesting moment where the two seems to have shifted. So that's pretty neat, Andreas. Yeah. I, I like yeah. the way your mind works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wonder. I, I did it in reverse. I've heard this belief that as you get older, you become more conservative, right? And you go back to sort of not only your initial beliefs that you were trying to shed or or explore outside of them, but that also you want more simplicity and more stability. So I've interpreted this change in me as the course of life of, of getting old. But I, I think that that you're onto something there when you say that I might have reversed things. I might have made very risky choices or taken risky decisions earlier in life when most people were trying to hold on to something safe and secure and establish a, a solid base. And now I'm reversing it. I'm going back to what I should have done when I was younger. When we were catching up before the break, we talked about money in a very kind of weird sort of way because we're both kind of in this freelancer, figuring out what's next mode. And I don't know if something's changed for you, but nothing's changed for me yet. But we talked about, I feel like we talked about the power the whole money has on how do you put it in its place so it doesn't control your life. But at the same time, you got to eat. As you've made some of your decisions, both vanilla and exciting, what's been the role of money or responsibility? Yeah, that's a good one. I think growing up in Colombia, money was definitely a big driver of decisions, if not the sole driver. So I remember in my teens, I wanted to design cars. I wanted to be a car designer. My room was full of my drawings. Everything I did was about that. And at some point, again, in a conversation with my father, it's like, well, that sounds great, but maybe you should be uh, an engineer and then <laughs> get a master's in industrial design or car design. That way you have sort of like a career, a backup, that, yeah, a backup yeah. where you can you make some money. Your dad sounds like he's an Indian father. <laughs> <laughs> and wanting to be rebellious, wanting to do what I wanted to do since I was a little kid, I went, yes, dad, you're right. And I made those decisions early in my career for money. Making a lot of money right out of college was very important. And I remember I having a, really a job with a lot of responsibility. So graduated, went to 
Procter and Gamble, which is I think what bonded us initially. Ramen, oh, we, yeah, XBG, you, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I went there, and at some point, someone, an XBNGer, was managing like a big sales force for a financial services company. They would sell door to door anything from savings to retirement to super old school, old school financial services door to door, and they hired me to lead the whole marketing and branding department. And I was 24 or 25. And I was making really good money. And I remember feeling fulfilled. This is it. I mean, I'm 25 and I'm making... I remember Look at my bank account, this. right. Look at my bank account. I'm making more than my dad. I remember thinking that and feeling super proud. And my dad feeling super proud about that. So mm-hmm. this validation comes from the number in the checking account, yeah? Yeah. And then the other thing I remember growing up that was sort of insightful in, in, in terms of this topic is I remember feeling cheated out of all the family's fortune that never reached me. So on both sides of my family, my dad and my mom's, at least there's stories <laughs> of a lot of land being owned by the family, a lot. And all that wealth, I don't know what happened, but nothing reached me, right? There's no trust. There's no land that I inherited. And I felt cheated. I felt like, how irresponsible were my great-grandparents and grandparents in like blowing all this money and not leaving anything for, for the coming generations. And that was the other sort of thought around money that I always felt that you need to build wealth for the next generation. And hopefully it passes on through the following generations so that they can have less pressure about the topic, make freer decisions in terms of what to do, et cetera, et cetera. Which brought us to that conversation that day, Raman where I think you were arguing, and I was agreeing, that yeah, but, right? We both know a lot of folks that grew up with a lot of wealth, and it wasn't a good thing for them. Yeah, you need, you need, be it popularity or money or whatever, you need hardship. I think hardship defines you. And I'm not, the three of us are of modest privilege, but I don't think I've been friends with people who've kind of had the, the silver spoon all the way. No offense to them. Some of them turn out fine, but that's the exception, not the norm. You have to, I don't know what the word is, but you need to be humbled by reality, emotional, financial, physical, because I think otherwise you take everything for granted. And I think money can be a dangerous thing. I think you need money to survive. Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You got to put a house, you got to feed your kids, all those things. But if you, I think more and more about this, like you need money, you need stability. But is that what's guiding you? No, you just need to know exactly what you need. And then everything else is gravy and treat it like that. Generational gravy if you want. But I love when Bill Gates and Warren Buffett said, we're not giving our kids a lot of money. I'm like, yeah, because they'll turn into (laughs) assholes if you do. (laughs) Yeah, I would be pissed at my dad, Bill, if he didn't leave me at least a couple billion. Honestly. But I think you're right, Ramin. And I think pay, there's pay for college, thing. buy you a nice car, that's all you get. I'm sorry. And <laughs> and then, no, in all seriousness, because and then my parents kind of didn't have much and they did well. And they left it to my sister and I they set us up for success, but they 
said on our terms, you know, doctor, engineer, this is the kind of education we'll pay for. You're not going to art school, son. And don't go find your dreams, right? <laughs> but we will make sure you are educated and there's a roof over your head and you need have what you need for your education. And that's great. And they know my sister and I are fine. And I think the pride that my parents have now is that, okay, so this goes for your kids' education. The idea of generational wealth is a powerful thing that separates the haves from the have-nots in this country, in America. But I think there's a responsible way to pass that money on. I don't know, man. Fine. If I was Bill Gates' kid, I might feel angry that I didn't get a couple billion, but then I'd, I'd use that anger to go build something amazing. I don't know. I think that hardship, that anger is a good thing in this case. So you both, well, Andreas, do you have kids and a family? You mentioned yes, we I have. before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have two daughters, 14 and 12. Okay. So I'm curious to know, you guys are talking, it makes a lot of sense to me hearing it from children of either immigrants or being an immigrant yourself. But what are you planning to do then for your own children? Because we are, my assumption is that the three of us are in much better places than our parents were at the same life stage. And you know, so I think about own- that really, really quick. Yeah. I... Absolutely, from a just wealth and privilege and ability standpoint, having all the advantages that were afforded. But then I was like, wow, my dad had his family and his career and his house set in his 30s. <laughs> and yeah. I, and I don't yeah. have any of that sorted out right now. <laughs> like I do, but I don't, we waited longer. But Andres, yeah, what's, what's your plan? Well, the good news, Raman, is that we're going to have the privilege to work well into our 70s, right? right. <laughs> the privilege. The privilege. <laughs> so we don't need to accelerate things. We can, we can delay gratification a little bit and settle all those things when we're in our 50s. I'll, I'll open a shipping container in Mexico and uh, <laughs> let you know how that goes. <laughs> don't do it, man. I'm telling you. <laughs> you, are, you are so on brand, Andreas. You're like, yeah, whatever. I'm going to work a little bit more and I'm going to branch off and discover some new invention for something. Well, you know what? That is exactly it. I think that you have to grow up feeling a little bit hungry with not everything being given to you so that you develop that sense of confidence that you can do it. And you can only develop that if you do it. And if you don't need to do it, then you don't do it, right? So if everything is handed you know, to you on a silver spoon, you, you, you don't find the motivation to do it. Right. And now that you're, now that your daughters are teenagers, basically, right? 12 and 14, they're, they're there. What sorts of things are you, like, are you encouraging them to do the same thing? Would you be happy if they decided to set up a shack on a beach somewhere else for six months? Oh, that's so interesting. It depends on which daughter comes up with that. <laughs> No, seriously, it, it, it goes Why? back to, to your essence as a person. And my daughters couldn't be more different. One is very focused, disciplined, hardworking. She doesn't put herself out there. She avoids risks at all costs. If she were the one to tell me, you know what, dad? My plans of going to Yale Law and working in a boutique law firm and making many millions as she tells me she wants to do. I think I'm rethinking that. I would be delighted. But if my other daughter, who's very carefree and not really a planner, and she sort of grabs 
opportunities when they arrive, but she's not focused or interested in creating opportunities for her, for herself. If he tells me about the shack, I would tell her, no, no, don't do it. You need to go to engineering. (laughs) (laughs) What do you you do when they say, but dad, you did X, Y, Z. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if this podcast gets aired and they hear it, just gave them an awesome idea, Raman. Thank you right. very much. They haven't we'll brought up that card yet. They haven't we'll edit that part out for you. <laughs> but anyways, I think going back to the original question, I wish I was a little bit more up to date in my 529s and savings for college. I'm working on that. But obviously, all financial financial health it's like your own health, right? You're doing stuff to live healthily, but that doesn't mean that you're the picture of health, right? I exercise, yeah, but I, I love wine and I love to have a cocktail maybe every night. So, <laughs> yeah. but the doctor tells me I'm great from a health perspective. Money-wise, I, I think it's the same thing. I'm okay. My daughters will be okay with their college education, but I wish I, I had a little bit more there. I think I go back to Raman's point of view there. I think setting them up with an education, leaving a legacy so that they can set up their kids, their own kids with an education, and maybe some emergency fund of sorts, some rainy day savings that they're not too knowledgeable about, something that gets triggered only in case of. That would be my ideal. And while building drive in them to go and accomplish and, and, and put their, themselves out there and take measured risks, not do what's expected of them always, challenge authority a little bit and pursue their own path, I think, versus some path that has been sort of co-opted through societal pressure, social media, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. As you were talking, I for some reason, a visual of the mutual fund matrix kind of popped up in my head. Now there's conservative growth or aggressive growth. And I feel like you're encouraging them to be in that middle manage risk section of life. Your professional marketing credentials are showing, Andreas. That's great. Aggressive growth. Aggressive growth. I'm an aggressive growth guy all around. Yeah. Well, Andreas, we've covered we went into some interesting territory I did not expect, and but we've only got a few minutes left. I think it's time for speed round. What do you think, Sharon? I think he's ready. Andreas, you ready? I think so. Uh, <laughs> wrong answer. No one's ever ready. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> What's something about you that no one expects? No one expects me to be such a softy. I come across as very sort of strong personality, strong opinions. I'm a real softy. I cry a lot. (laughs) I mean, we haven't had more than this conversation, but I can see you being a softy for sure. You immediately strike me as someone who's warm and compassionate and would definitely cry during a movie. I mean, that's why when you said Paris, I was like, oh yeah, you went out there to follow your heart. So don't be so hard on yourself, Andreas. You're a softy and we all see it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Sharon. (laughs) Yeah. So speaking of movies or maybe books, what's a book, movie, or show with characters that you relate to that you could recommend? Oh, wow. In the French New Wave sort of realm, there's one that always sort of comes back to me in conversations, The 400 Blows. 
It's a film by Francois Truffaut, and it's sort of a coming-of-age movie of a neglected boy that tries to do the best he can. Extremely sad, extremely powerful movie. Book-wise, recently I read an, an amazing book, and I, I might get the title wrong because it's a, it's a long title, but it's, uh, I think, The Island at the Center of the World from Russ Shorto. And it's a historical account of the New York Dutch colony. And he argues how the true American spirit was born out of Dutch values in the New York colony and not in New England and not in the other British colonies. Fascinating read. Wow. Yeah, I want to check that one out. What's your favorite mom dish? Ahiaku. Please, thank you. I don't know what that is. <laughs> it's a soup. It's a potato base. There's three, three different potatoes that go into creating this very starchy broth. And it's topped with chicken and capers and corn on the cob and a Colombian herb called guasca, which is typical to the Andes region of Colombia. And I've never found anywhere else other than Queens supermarkets. Yum. What's your least favorite food? I think fast food. I think junk food. Be more specific. Pick on one. <laughs> Maybe like a very bad fast food, like pizza would be the worst. It's like throwing a bowl of dough with a cup of cheap oil into your <laughs> stomach and letting it ferment there. See what happens. Ugh. <laughs> And top it up with some cheap salami for that fat to just stay on top of that. And so you're you're talking like frozen pizza. You're not talking you go into a pizzeria and get really bad pizza there. I think the pizza the bad pizza at a pizzeria is probably the worst. So yeah. yes, that's okay. the one I'm talking about. Yeah. Okay. So it is it is a pizzeria bad pizza. Got it. But but great pizza is one of my most favorite foods. All right, you just redeemed yourself. You were going to the dangerous territory. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Can I say something that's really going to make your listeners hate me? Sure. Of course. Sure. I don't like dogs. No. I don't oh. like dogs. I'm sorry. I think they're, listen, let me qualify that. I love dogs in the countryside where they can run and be the awesome animals they are. Not in New York City apartments. Not in urban dwellings. That's cruel, and it's very, very uncomfortable for human beings to be in that setting, from my perspective. That's a very controversial conversation. A friend of mine used to tease me that that should be my platform to run for New York City mayor. <laughs> I hate pizza, and I hate dogs. <laughs> Tax dog ownership. Andreas, he hates Stop. dogs. Yeah. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> Stop the shit and the yellow sort of patches oh, on, the, on the snow. On the snow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that should be my platform. Obviously, I wouldn't win, but I would run a very so you're an issues candidate, polarizing you're an issues candidate. message. <laughs> <laughs> Who's someone out there that you would want to interview on a podcast? Wow, maybe David Lynch. Oh wow, that would be a pretty awesome interview. Like this one, I wouldn't be sure where it was going to go. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And what does being a modern minority mean to you? It means to me being open to all the influences 
that are new and novel that surround you by definition as a minority and succeeding in striking a balance between growing with all those influences and, and becoming a more interesting, better person without sacrificing or without forgetting where you come from. I like that. Yeah, that's great. Andreas, we only talk every couple of years, but this conversation has proven that we need to be talking more often. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you, Ramon. Thank Raman. you so, so much. It was thank such you, a pleasure Sarah. to meet you. And I'm hoping that one day you'll learn to love dogs, but otherwise I love everything about you. <laughs> I love dogs, just not in New York City. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. Now, here's a preview of our next episode. After that, I was like, I can't date white people anymore. I just cannot do it. Like this, I can't go through this again. I can't deal with this again. I also don't think that eliminating an entire race of people is also the right thing to do. That's not helping me, right? And I know that there are men out there who have done the work and who are willing to have the conversations and who are excited to do that. But I'm also no longer willing in being the person who's teaching them and educating them. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.